The question for you this morning is, what is the most important thing for us as Christians to do? What is the most paramount mission that we have as followers of Christ? And you're probably thinking of a few different things that we've been told to do. But what if I told you that the most important thing for us as Christians to do isn't to love one another, and it isn't to serve one another, and it isn't even to forgive one another? What if I told you there was something even more important than all three of those things that we need to stay true to? This morning we're going to start in Luke chapter 10, and we're looking at the family of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. This family that shows up over and over and over again throughout Jesus' ministry, His death, and resurrection. This family, they, they, they find Jesus and they hold true to His teachings. And they, like so many of our other characters that we've studied, recognize His divinity pretty early on. And not only that, but they host him from time to time. He, they are a host family, and so when he comes into town, they are often the family that he turns to. But we see in Luke chapter 10, we're going to be in verse 38. It's a real short scripture reading, but there's a lot to dissect within it. It says, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. In order to understand the context of this passage, we have to travel back in time to ancient Israel, to the ancient Hebrew cultures of the time. First, let's look at Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. Now, most women of the time were not allowed to enter into the temples and to sit and learn the Torah. They, they were welcome to stand outside, stand on the peripherals and listen, but they were not involved in scriptural studies, as it were. That was left for the men. Now, granted, there were a few exceptions where women were raised up within a very religious family and got to learn it within the walls of their own house. But for 99% of women, the idea of sitting at the feet of a rabbi and listening to his message was unheard of. It was just unheard of. That's not a place for women of the time. The second thing is happening with Martha. Because Mary wasn't supposed to be sitting at the feet of the rabbi. She was supposed to leave that spot there next to him for another man while she prepared the house. Those were the women's duties at the time, were to go about and prepare. And remember, when we see these stories of Jesus and these families that are hosting him, it's not just Jesus, it's his disciples. It's a big group of people who are now within their house. And it goes to stand, stands to reason that when we see him being hosted by these families, these are probably better off families who have houses big enough to host that amount of people. Right? We're not talking about families where you've got ten people packed into a house the size of this sanctuary. 
And so Martha and Mary are these two women, and they're hosting Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus comes in, and he's delivering a message. And what is supposed to happen, based on all cultural context, is for Mary and Martha to be preparing the food, serving dinner, cleaning up, attending to the needs of the disciples, of, of the men following along with Jesus. The last thing either one of them are supposed to be doing, based on the culture of the time, is sitting down and listening to the rabbi. Martha, presumably the older sister, she's getting frustrated. And we can probably put ourselves in her shoes, right? Think about a Thanksgiving, all your family, and, and you'd look around and find out real quick that you're the only one washing dishes. Everyone else is having a good time. You're the only one setting out plates. You're the only one doing anything. And you get a little frustrated. Like, can somebody stop inter you know, being entertained and come help do some of these responsibilities? And Martha goes to the rabbi in the room, right? The rabbi, the religious uh, leader. You're the man of the house. As soon as you entered into this, you tell Mary to get up off her behind and come help me in the kitchen, to paraphrase what occurs. Because Martha is, is living up to the cultural expectations of the time. She's not supposed to be listening to Jesus. She's supposed to be tending to the responsibilities. But Jesus, he responds to her and says, You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So I asked you earlier, I said, what's the most important thing for us as Christians? Is it loving our neighbor? Is it serving others? Is it forgiving others? No, the most important thing for us as Christians is to keep our eyes on Jesus. Plain and simple, Jesus tells us that. He says, indeed, there is only one thing you need to do. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Now, everything else is important and it falls in line when you follow the number one rule. But how many of us are guilty of letting being a Christian distract us from Jesus? How many of us are guilty of trying so hard to live a Christian life that we no longer look towards Jesus himself, but are too caught up in the, the cultural context, the cultural expectations of today, of what a Christian is supposed to look like? We see that out in the world all the time, don't we, where people get so caught up in living the Christian life that they don't even seem to be thinking about Jesus himself. And Jesus, he's witnessing this everywhere he goes. And again, like the conversation he had last week with the Samaritan woman, he is breaking cultural expectations and norms everywhere he goes. Because while Martha was sitting there getting frustrated with Mary, there were probably other men amongst his disciples who were wondering why Jesus wasn't saying anything about Mary sitting there at his feet. And it says that she sat at his feet. I mean, you consider the fact that there were 12 disciples, that's a lot of people. She was probably up in front of several of the male disciples, right? She wasn't standing off in the back. She wasn't hanging out in the back corner or in the doorway listening. No, she was right there front and center, amazed at the message of the Lord. And she was hearing something and seeing something that Martha never could in her busy uh, Busyness, running around the house, making the preparations that had to be made. Tell her to help me, she tells Jesus. Tell Mary to help me. 
But Jesus... Martha, 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 he responds. Martha, Martha. I can kind of, I can kind of imagine his, his just kind of the sigh, the, you're still not getting it, are you, Martha? <laughs> you're so busy trying to live up to the cultural expectations, trying to live up to man's expectations of what you need to be doing, that you're missing the point. You're missing the point. You see, Jesus was countercultural everywhere he went. He was fighting against traditions and values and norms that had been established for centuries amongst the Hebrew people. And this is one of those examples where he says there is very few things needed for this life. Or indeed, he says, only one. And that is him. Martha and Mary, they show back up in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that the God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days and then said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. But Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that many you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. On his arrival, when Jesus finally gets there, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. And I wonder about this passage. And many of us probably have when we read through the story of Lazarus because his sister sent word to Jesus, hey, Lazarus is sick, he's dying, we need you, we know that you can heal him. But what does Jesus do? Well, he does one of those things that's unexpected. He waits. Two more days he waits. doesn't tell us what he's doing, but to be a disciple, to be someone around him when he finds out that his loved one is dying and he has the cure and then he just decides to wait around, for two days, no hurry, no rush, no eagerness to get down there and save Lazarus. It's probably confusing for a lot of those. Lazarus, dead in the tomb for four days. In preparation for this, and it mentions it in our, in our Bible study, it said that a cultural uh, belief at the time was that when someone died, that their soul lingered around the body for about three days. This was a belief or superstition of the time, that their soul would linger around the dead body for about three days, and it was when the body began to decompose and break down that the stench would drive the spirit away. 
And that, that brought up a lot of beliefs and a lot of different understanding about this. And so it seems to be that when Jesus waited until Lazarus was dead in the grave for four days, the idea being that he was past saving, right? That the Spirit had left him completely. Because it was, I, would, I don't want to say common, but it happened back then when someone would die, big air quotes there, and then come back to life because they just fell into a deep coma or they were in some kind of uh, unconscious state. And, and that's what a lot of our, our scientists today who try to disprove the resurrection of Christ go back to and saying, oh, it did occur when people would think they were dead, but they were really just really bad sick, the heart rate slowed, etc., etc. So four days, dead, buried in the tomb, removes all doubt that he is dead. This guy's dead. He had no food or water for four days, even if he was alive. Lazarus is dead. Furthermore, that fourth day is when the body starts to have a stink to it. And I wonder about that, though, because here's Jesus. We know he doesn't have to be present. We know that with a snap of his fingers from across the world, he could have healed Lazarus and kept him from ever going in the grave in the first place. We know that. We see that kind of healing happen numerous times throughout the Gospels. Jesus saying, go home, he's saved, you're welcome. But he doesn't do that with Lazarus. Second point, he has a soft spot in his heart for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. We don't see this kind of language used with a lot of his other followers or disciples. This idea of how he much he loved this family and how much he loved Lazarus. And granted, Jesus loves everybody he met, but the scripture and the gospel makes it a very clear point to make that known that he loved this family very much. That they were an exception to just a random beggar coming up and asking for healing. That they were like family to him in a more meaningful sense. And so as I read through the scripture, I have to ask myself, why did he allow Mary and Martha to suffer for four days? Because that's what occurred. Jesus knowingly spent two days sitting there knowing that Mary and Martha were mourning the loss of Lazarus. Knowing that these two women that he loved, that he held dear to his heart, were in pain and were suffering and were wondering where he was. Because they sent out a message. It said, come and save Lazarus. Come and heal Lazarus. And then the days go by. Jesus should have been here by now. And he wasn't. And then Lazarus dies. And then Lazarus is buried. Then Lazarus stays buried for four days. Imagine, though, just imagine being Mary or Martha or any number of people in that family. Imagine knowing what Jesus is capable of, witnessing it with your own eyes, knowing that he could heal your loved ones, knowing that he could work a miracle, knowing that all you have to do is get him to, like I said, snap those fingers and Lazarus was healed and never had to go into the grave in the first place. Now imagine sending word to Jesus and hearing nothing back. And imagine waiting around for your Savior to show up and he never does. Now imagine watching a loved one that you know Jesus could heal die and perish. Imagine burying him in the tomb. Still no sign of Jesus. 
The days pass. The hope dwindles. Okay, yeah, maybe he can save them, bring them back after a day. Okay, maybe two days. His spirit's still lingering. Okay, three days, we're kind of pushing it. Okay, now we're on day four. Lazarus is still in the tomb. And here comes Jesus on the horizon, four days late. I think all of us can relate to the notion of needing Jesus and wondering where he is. Knowing that Jesus has the power to help your situation, but wondering where he is. All of us have been through that. All of us have been in dark moments in our lives where we pray earnestly. We pray with blood, sweat, and tears. We know Jesus can do something. We know a miracle can be done, but nothing happens. As modern-day Christians... We know how this story ends. In fact, Lazarus, when I say the word Lazarus, even to non-Christians, the idea of bringing brought back to life is, is the relationship that we have with that name. But if you're reading this with fresh eyes and you've never read this story before, it's a very dark, depressing story. Here's Jesus, a man capable of saving this guy, and he just doesn't. He just sits down waits around for two days, waits for him to die, and then shows up four days late. All hope is lost. This, of course, is setting the stage for his own resurrection. We know that. We know the story of Lazarus and what he does here is preparing his disciples to understand what is going to come. But even then, Jesus stayed dead for what? Three days? But the stories are so similar because when Jesus comes back from the dead, he too finds people in mourning, who have lost all hope in resurrection. On his arrival in verse 17, Jesus found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Speaking, of course, of the, um, the last days, right? The rapture, the idea of the dead in Christ rising up into heaven. Your brother... Uh, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said to her. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into this world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, notice how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. And the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some said, Could he not could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? So we get here, Jesus finally shows up, 
and Mary and Martha, as excited they are to see Jesus, they're somewhat, and this is kind of my interpretation of it, a little angry with Jesus. If you had been here, our brother would not have died. Where were you? Where were you when he was laying in his bed? Where were you for the last four days as we mourned him in the darkest moment of our lives? Where were you? Have any of you felt like screaming that at Jesus and God yourself in some of your dark times? Where were you? I felt alone. They both still recognize his divinity, of course. They don't call him a liar. They don't say that this proves that you're not anything. No, they still recognize his divinity. But they have so many questions. Furthermore, Bethany is a two-hour walk to our trip from Jerusalem. So there's a lot of people. There's this big crowd of people, family, friends, loved ones who are gathered there around this house to help Mary and Martha while they were in mourning. Because now, at least in the context that we have, they are quite presumably without a man in the household. And so the community has to rally together to help these two women. They all gather. They are going out to the edge of the village to meet Jesus. And Jesus weeps. Wept. He weeps. But not for Lazarus. Jesus looks around and sees the sorrow in the hearts of all of these men and women and children at the love that they share. And he weeps for the sorrow and the suffering of the people that he loves. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance, much very similar to his own. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. And Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then he looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Then he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face. And he said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. No surprise ending for us as Christians, because we know how, how that story ends. He brings Lazarus back, back from the dead. His soul is now back in his body. Those little electrons and or those neurons are now firing off with electricity as they animate the muscles in the body. And he walks right out of the tomb, flesh and blood, heart pumping once again. But he's still going to die. Lazarus is still going to die an earthly death. He was brought back in that moment, but that body will not last him forever. You see, that's something that Jesus knows. As, as Mary and Martha, they mourn the loss of Lazarus, and they pray to God, and they ask, why don't you heal him? Why didn't you save him? Why didn't you come the day after to bring him back? Why you didn't do all these things? But Jesus knows. This is temporary. Even bringing this man back from the dead is a temporary fix. Because Jesus knows that the day will come when all of them will be in their own graves. But he also knows something very important. 
that there is a greater thing in store for believers than this life on this earth in these bodies. That there's a greater future waiting for all of us. He knows that Lazarus, as a believer, as a lover of Christ, after his own death, had great things waiting for him. Better things than living on this earth. But he looks around at the people who are mourning his loss, mourning the loss of Lazarus, and he weeps. You know, I can relate to that. How many of us during hard, difficult times can hold it together, can put on a brave face until we see someone start to cry, until we see a loved one start to tear up, and then we too tear up. We can't hold it together anymore. There's a quote from a show that when I heard it, it hit me hard and I loved it so much but, but it's talking about mourning and it's talking about the grief that we go through when we lose a loved one and the quote is what is grief if not love persevering the idea being that the very notion that we grieve that loss hurts that we are suffering when we lose a loved one means that the love that we had for that person is stronger than death itself that our love perseveres even through death. That even after they are dead and gone, our love for them remains the same. The strongest force in the existence of the universe is love. What is grief but not love persevering? And that's what Jesus is seeing here in this moment. He's seeing love persevere. Four days after Lazarus, and his mortal shell was dead and buried and gone, the people still loved him. People still cared about him, still missed him, still mourned him. Jesus proved right then and there that he had power over death itself. And yet, fast forward a little ways longer, when he himself is dead and buried in a tomb quite similar to Lazarus's, his disciples forget that fact. Right? They doubt that he can bring himself back. Because what we see with the resurrection of Christ is very different than the resurrection of every other man or woman in this Bible. Lazarus was raised because Jesus was there to raise him. Elijah raised the dead when he was there with the dead. But there were no intercessors for Jesus as he laid in the tomb. There were no prophets outside that stone praying over Jesus' body to bring him back from the dead. It's a spiritual uh, defibrillator, so to speak. Right, you've got this guy laying there dead, Jesus, Elijah, some of the other prophets we see with this kind of power. They have those spiritual paddles ready, clear, and they bring them back. But when Jesus was dead in the grave, there was nobody there. What is Jesus doing? W-I-J-D. What is Jesus doing? You see, what happened in both of these stories is quite clear because they might seem unrelated other than the characters, but... 
In the first story, we see the importance. Mary is keeping her eyes on Jesus. She's not being concerned about the things of the world. She knows that when Jesus talks, that is the most important thing in the universe. And he tells Martha that. She understands what is important. But in the story of Lazarus, what happens is everybody forgets about old Jesus. Or they get angry with Jesus. They're worried about the loss, and the mourning, and the difficult times ahead. They're focused on their grief. They're focused on their sorrow. But so many of them, after Jesus never showed, turned their eyes away from Jesus. They forgot about His power and His glory. Because the truth is, Jesus waited around two days not to make them hurt more, not because He was hard and cold and calloused, not because He didn't care, but because He was doing something even more important than Lazarus' life. And it's difficult for us to understand that sometimes because we live in a world where we think it's about ourselves. And we get into these dark, hard places, these difficult times, and we think, why isn't Jesus doing something? Why isn't God helping me out of this? Why is He allowing me to suffer? These aren't new concerns. This is something written in the very Gospel. Mary and Martha suffered for four days at the loss of their brother because Jesus didn't help. But when Jesus showed up, He was doing it to glorify His Father in heaven. There's a quote I say quite often. This little old lady at the uh, rehab hospital I worked at told me, she says, the trees don't grow on the mountaintops. It's in the difficult times that we grow. It's when we're challenged that our, 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 our true selves are tested. We don't grow physically by going to the gym and lifting light weights. We don't grow intellectually by reading the stuff that we already know. We don't grow spiritually by living easy lives that never challenge us or test us. No, these dark, difficult times, these times of sorrow and suffering and mourning, they're hard for us because we wonder where Jesus is. We wonder why He hasn't healed us. He hasn't saved us. He hasn't performed the miracle that we pray so earnestly for. But without these challenges, we don't grow spiritually. We don't improve spiritually. Our faith isn't tested. I talked before about that barrier for entry for Christians, right? About how much easier it is for some of us to be, become Christians than it is for others. And about how for so many people they have to have literally everything stripped away from their life before they give themselves over to Christ. And it's a part of that, right? It's the idea of just testing us to our fullest. Go to the gym and watch some of these bodybuilders. Watch what they bench press. Watch what they lift. They go out there and they set up their, their barbells and they put an impossible weight on those barbells. And they know they cannot lift that. They've never lifted that before. They've never done that much weight before. I always like, that is the one thing I like about the Summer Olympics is the bodybuilding weightlifting competitions. It's amazing the kind of weight some of these men and women can lift. But that's what they do, right? Every time they go, they put up something that is impossible to do. I've never lifted this 250 pounds before, or whatever that weight might be. And then they rub their hands, and they reach down, they get in position, they grab that barbell, and they lift it for the first time in their life, lifting that weight. They lift it once, maybe twice, 
And you know what happens? The next week they come to the gym, they put on more weight. And they do it again. Over and over and over again. These bodybuilders, every time they grab that bar, there is more weight than they've ever lifted before. And that's how they improve their physical power. That's how they improve themselves physically, is by going in and doing it more. Same thing with runners. They run it faster every single time. Spiritually speaking, that's what Jesus is doing in our lives. He's pushing us. He's pushing us. He's putting a challenge in front of us. He's saying, here's this spiritual barbell. Boom. It's heavier than anything you've ever dealt with before. It's harder than anything you've ever imagined before. You're looking at this right now and you're telling yourself you can't do it because you've never done it. You've never made it through something this dark, this difficult, this tragic before. But guess what? We've got Jesus as that spiritual spotter, right? He's standing right there. He's saying, you got it. You've never done it before, but you've got it. And we get through it. We get through the heartache. We get through the pain. We get through the sickness, the whatever it is. And then guess what happens? The next week, Jesus shows up, throws in something else in front of us, even heavier than what we went through prior, and says, you've got it. He shows up at Mary and Martha's door four days after their brother died. Unimaginable mourning and loss. Unimaginable because they literally have sat at the feet of the man who could save him. Think about it. When Lazarus got sick, when our loved ones get sick, we, we start fretting. We start panicking. We think, okay, I hope the doctors can figure out what's wrong. I hope they can get the medicine right. I'm going to pray and do all these things. And, and you know, we, we, we kind of go into that spiral. For Mary and Martha... Oh, Lazarus is sick. Oh, man, that's the bummer. Go get Jesus. He's going to fix him. We can go on with our life. They weren't too concerned about it when Lazarus fell sick because the Messiah was literally having a sleepover in their house a few weeks prior, right? They're not worried about that. They've got Jesus in their corner. But guess what? He's a no-show. Think about how hard that must have been for Mary and Martha. We can kind of relate because we've been through that, spiritually speaking, where we feel like God is ignoring us. But for them, <laughs> Jesus was as real as you and I and sat in their house and ate their food and did all these things, and yet he didn't show up. Unimaginable mourning and tragedy struck that house the day Lazarus died. Where was Jesus? Does he not care about us one bit? Think about all the times we've hosted him. Think about all the times we've fed his disciples. Think about all the time that we, we poured our perfume onto his head and we washed his feet with our hair. Think about all these things we did for Jesus. And then when we needed him, he was not there. But he shows up four days later and they think that it's impossible. They think that it is far too gone. But for Jesus, nothing is impossible. And Lazarus rose from the dead. And their faith was tested in a way that they had never done before. And it was going to be tested even farther when Jesus died on that cross. You thought that was hard, going through the loss of Lazarus? Imagine what it was like for them when Jesus himself died on that cross. Why didn't he take himself off the cross? Because he had something better in store for everyone. Let us pray.
Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for this story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Lord God. And we just pray that when we find ourselves in dark times, when we find ourselves in difficult times, when we find ourselves feeling like God isn't there or that you are ignoring our prayers, Lord God, let us just be reminded that you are working on something greater than anything we could ever imagine. That there are greater things in store for ourselves and for our, our existence than these, this earthly world. Lord God, we pray that you allow us to regain the faith, to, to improve our faith with each and every trial that you put in front of us. Lord God, we thank you each and every day for your presence in our lives, for the healing and the miracles that you've performed so far. Lord God, we pray that as, you, as we continue to live our lives, as we continue to face challenges, that we never lose sight of you, that we keep our eyes glued on Jesus Christ for the rest of our lives. We pray that you forgive us for our sins, forgive us for our doubts, forgive us for our fears. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hatridge Sermons Podcast. I greatly encourage everyone listening to make sure you subscribe, rate, and review if your podcasting platform allows that. If there is a platform that you enjoy that this podcast is not available on, please feel free to reach out to me and let me know so that we can make that happen. As always, if you know of anyone who could use this word, use these messages, if there's any particular sermon that speaks to you about someone in your life, feel free to share this episode and this podcast with others. As always, it is a blessing to be able to reach more people through this audio form with our sermons, that you don't have to attend in person in order to receive the message of God. That being said, you are always welcome to visit us in person at either the Ben Loman Cumberland Presbyterian Church, with services at 10 a.m. on Sundays, or the Brownstown Community Church, which has services at 11. You are more than welcome at either one of those churches, and we look forward to seeing you. Thank you again for listening, and Godspeed.